I don't know if you've ever given much thought to this idea, this idea of what it might mean that God is a husband to his people. God is a husband to his people. The image of God as king, or maybe God as shepherd, or God as rock, somehow and sometimes those feel more familiar to us, or at least more accessible to us. We get it. We understand it. But even though I myself am a husband, and I have been a husband for 27 years, it can be difficult for me to connect with this imagery. Why is that? Well, I'm not totally sure. I'm guessing it's because I'm a man. That could have something to do with it. (laughs) The idea of me walking around saying, oh, my husband, my husband, my husband. You know, I just, I don't know. It doesn't really... Uh, it doesn't really land right with me. Uh, maybe some of you ladies feel the same way. And yet for you, maybe the struggle to connect has to do more with personal experiences, with, with maybe painful experiences in relation to that word husband. However you relate to this imagery this morning, I believe that God would have us answer this simple question. Why? Why? Why did God choose to use this imagery of husband with his people, to his people? Let's tackle that question. If you're not there already, as I mentioned, turn to Isaiah 54. It's from last week's reading, some powerful, beautiful readings from last week. Uh, Follow along, though, if you're there, Isaiah 54. Follow along as I read through verses 4 through 8 of this chapter. So here are the words of the living God through his prophet Isaiah. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord, Yahweh of hosts is His name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth He is called. For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says Yahweh, your Redeemer. Okay, let's stop there. So to really grasp what this passage is communicating to us this morning, let's think about three phrases from this text. We'll put these up here on the screen. These three phrases. 
We'll use these as kind of our guideposts in understanding the passage this morning, studying together. Number one, your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. Number two, but with everlasting love. But with everlasting love. And number three, the God of the whole earth. The God of the whole earth. So let me add three words that could represent the main ideas behind these, those three phrases. You can just add those in if you want to. To the first one, the idea of covenant. To the second, compassion. And the third, the word capable. So the three phrases and then matching each of those three words just to kind of convey the sense of what we're going to look at together. Covenant, compassion, and capable. So think about number one, your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. We see that, don't we, in verse five. The foundation for this common Old Testament imagery of God as husband And it is common. It's found in many other places than just here in Isaiah 54. The foundation for for this idea is surely this concept of covenant. Covenant. What do a married couple, a man and a woman, and God and Israel have in common? That's all we're really asking, isn't it? Why would God use the idea of being a husband Well, we have to ask what they have in common, what he and his people have in common with a man and a woman who are married. What they have in covenant, what they have in common is they are bound together by a covenant connection. Now, a husband and wife, they enter into that covenant relationship through a wedding ceremony, right? Whether it's fancy, whether it's ornate, you spend lots of money, or it's got an Elvis there, right? At a chapel in Las Vegas. <laughs> Whatever it is, that wedding ceremony is where that covenant relationship is entered into. With God and His people, where did that take place? It took place on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Now, did you mention Abraham? I think I heard somebody mouth Abraham up here. Abraham has the big blessing, the promise of blessing to Abraham's descendants. And yet, at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, when Moses had brought the people out of Egypt, right? They were emancipated. They were liberated from their slavery to the Egyptians. When they got to Mount Sinai, what did God do? He set up a covenant with them and said, if you want to participate, each and every one of you individually, in the very blessing that I promised to Abraham, because you are his descendants, I'm going to make an agreement with you how you can participate in that blessing. How could they do that? They could follow his law, his word. He gave them that law and said, I will take you, I'm taking you as a people for myself. Be holy as I'm holy. Walk in the way that I show you. If you do so, God would do what? Bless them. If they did not do so, he would do what? Curse, bring curses upon them. Right? So the carrot and the stick, right? (laughs) God was doing both of these with his people. He was teaching them something very powerful about himself and also through this covenant relationship about themselves and about their ability to serve God. What was truly wrong with them deep down within. 
So this marriage idea, this covenant idea, God did not have a wedding with Israel, but He made a covenant with the people in Exodus chapter 19. But the marriage imagery here in Isaiah 54 is not marriage imagery of a happy couple. You know, the happy couple that sometimes comes with the photo frame when you buy it at the store. It's got a picture of that couple there. Or you see it on a, on a wedding site, right? That, that one they, you know, wedding coordinator or whatever. They've got that shot of the, of the couple and they're, oh, they're like staring into each other's eyes and there's just like that newlywed bliss, just like the glowing aura around the couple. This is not that. This is not that. Sadly, the imagery here in Isaiah 54, yes, is of a marriage, but it's built here on the reality or around the reality of covenant unfaithfulness. And obviously, that unfaithfulness, if you know anything about the Bible, that's unfaithfulness on the part of Israel, not God. God is not unfaithful. He's always faithful. Now, it's alluded to here, that unfaithfulness. Did you see it here? It's alluded to in verse 4. God talks about the shame of your youth. The the shame of what happened before when you were uh, longer ago. But also notice the other phrase from verse 4. The reproach of your widowhood. Also take a look at verse 6 again. Like a wife deserted and like a wife of youth when she is cast off okay wait a minute what exactly is god saying here what is this situation he's saying israel at this point in history appears to be like a divorced or widowed woman sent away on her own husbandless right that's what seems to be the case here Why is that? Why is she in that position? Because God has sent her away. And we call that sending away the Babylonian exile. It's simply a way to describe an historical event. And that event is that the people, because of their sins and their covenant disobedience, God says, if you disobey, I will bring curses upon you. And if you read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about those curses, the final one, do you remember it? Do you remember what it was? The land's going to vomit you out. You're going to, you're going to be cast out of this promised land that I gave to Abraham and his descendants forever, right? I'm going to, I'm going to cast you out. And that's exactly what happened eventually. Now, was God just kind of testy one day and and they had disobeyed and, you know, after a few years, he's like, I'm sick of this. No, 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 no. From the time they left Egypt to the time that they were cast out of the land, that's like six or seven hundred years. It's a testimony to the patience of God, what we call the long suffering of God. That He endured with their sin and gave them every chance. Sent them prophets over and over again. Just like He does with His Word in our lives. He sends His Holy Spirit and His Word over and over again to us. That's why the apostles in the New Testament say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the one that, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't ignore what He's saying to you. 
The people did that and eventually this is what happened. They were sent away. And so they felt like a wife widowed. They felt like a wife divorced. They felt all alone. Like an unfaithful and unrepentant wife, Israel was sent away because of her sins. She had broken the covenants. Now, we kind of started on a, on a nice note, right? God as someone's husband. God as his people's husband. And now I'm on this very negative, like, wow, this is a really depressing story. This is really, this is really sad. Big time. Bummer. Big time. But you know, because I just read these verses, you know this is not the end of the story. Gloriously, wonderfully, this isn't the end of the story. Consider that next phrase. Phrase two, but with everlasting love. But with everlasting love. This marriage, this covenant relationship was not simply a formal contractual relationship. If it were so, God would have just called it something else. He would have used another image. Uh, I am your business partner is what He would say. We have a contract with one another. That's not the image He uses. He uses the image of a husband. Why does he use the image of a husband? The marriage imagery used throughout the Old Testament is meant to describe a loving relationship. One of deep care. One of unrelenting faithfulness. So though this idea of sending away was similar language to the language of divorce, what happened here was not the end, God tells them. It was not God moving on to someone else. This was loving discipline with an eye toward restoration. That's why they were sent away. This should not have been a surprise to them because He told them this back in the covenant. If in that far off land to which I have sent you, you finally come to your senses and you realize what you've done and why you are where you are, then humble yourself and cry out to me and I will bring you back. Isn't that wonderful? Behold our God, way of grace. Behold our God. This was not the end. Just look again at verse 7. Great compassion spilling out through God's tender words here. Though God's people are like, verse 6, a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, they will, verse 4, not be ashamed, not be confounded, not be disgraced. Yes, God's righteous anger was unleashed against their sin and they suffered the promised covenant consequences for their idolatry. That's how they were unfaithful, wasn't it? Uh, like an actual woman may be unfaithful to her husband by taking another lover. What Israel did is they took other gods as their spiritual lovers. That's how they betrayed. That's how they were unfaithful to God. And they suffered the consequences that God told them in advance that they would suffer. But verse 8, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. This restoration, this amazing restoration is talked about by the prophets. 
It doesn't matter. Any of the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of the Twelve, the book of the Twelve, what we call the minor prophets. In Hebrew, it's the book of the Twelve. Right? Those Twelve prophets, they all speak of this restoration that God is describing here. And this restoration is probably best visualized for us through one prophet's ministry, and his name was Hosea. And Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. They both ministered in the 8th century. What was Hosea instructed to do in, in order to bring this message powerfully to the people? He was, in fact, instructed to marry a prostitute. He married a prostitute. He had children with a prostitute. He began a family with a prostitute. But she continued to live a promiscuous lifestyle. She continued to go her own way. And in the same way, God was visualizing for the people that he too was married to an unfaithful wife. But in Hosea chapter 3, the prophet is instructed to take back his unfaithful wife. And when we read it, we read that he actually had to go, go and buy her back because somehow she had fallen into some kind of servitude or slavery by that time that he had to buy her back. But Hosea's actions, we know, as strange, as powerful, as moving as that story is, as, as mind-boggling as that story is, we know that his actions were ultimately meant to picture what God would do with His people because of His great compassion. The great compassion that's spoken about here in Isaiah 54. Here's the incredible language from Hosea chapter 2. Take a look on the screen. Just listen to these words. Therefore, remember, knowing what Israel, the people of God, remembering her unfaithfulness, listen to these words. Therefore, this is what God says, Behold, I will... I will Allure her. Some translations have, I will woo her. I will woo her and bring her into the wilderness where their relationship began. And I will speak tenderly to her. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. Wow, this is what Isaiah was talking about. This is the same restoration beautifully and powerfully embodied in Hosea's own life and relationship. Consider with me one more phrase from Isaiah 54. Number three, the God of the whole earth. The God of the whole earth. It's important to remember what we talked about in our our last study. As we come to Isaiah 54, we're kind of dropping out of the sky into this big, wonderful prophetic book. What's the context? That's we always have to ask that if we're faithful in studying the scriptures. What is the context of what we're looking at here? Who's being addressed by God's word in this passage? Well, we looked at that very subject last week. Isaiah, who lived in the 8th century B.C., was ultimately speaking to an audience not yet born. 
They were those from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin who had been exiled to Babylon, like we just talked about, the sending away. But now they're in the 6th century B.C. They were under the conquering Persian Empire. Now, 70 years had gone by from the time they had left Jerusalem. The temple of God was destroyed in Jerusalem. The city raised to the ground. They had been gone for 70 years. And then even after that time, it was a slow, slowly they began to, to, to be able to come back. But remember this. There continued to be forces arrayed against them. They were not an independent nation at the, like the zenith of their power. They had no military. They had nothing They were still subjugated under the Persians. Keep that in mind. And beyond that, think about their cultural, their their social, and the moral shame that they dealt with. They were a people dispossessed of their own land. And they knew, the honest ones among them knew why they were dispossessed, why they were far away from their own land. They had to live not by any kinds of rules that were their own. They had to live by somebody else's rules. They had to live under somebody else's thumb, didn't they? Think about that. Think about all of these ideas. And this idea as well, the idea of uprooting and returning to a land they had never known would be extremely daunting to so many of them. So knowing this, When God says He's going to restore them, He knew that they would need reassurance, right? They would need reassurance. We talked a lot about that last week, the reassurance that He gave. But that's where verse 5 comes in here. Look back at verse 5. Who is their husband? He is their maker. He created them. He's the Creator God. Who is their husband? He is Yahweh of hosts. What does that mean? Yahweh of armies, heavenly armies. Who is their husband? He is the God of the whole earth. It doesn't matter if the Persians have their own gods or the Egyptians have their own gods or any other nation surround them had their own gods. Those gods were false. And the God who was over all people, the whole earth, is the God of Israel. This was the God who was speaking to them. So they're, and he's their redeemer, right? Two times we hear about him as redeemer. So God is reminding them here that no earthly power can alter his plans as their redeemer. Their heavenly husband, therefore, is not only tender with them, as we saw before, but he is also strong. He is more than capable of protecting them, of providing for his beloved people. As he reassures them again in verse 10. Drop down to verse 10. Just a little past where we are. What does it say? For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. So think again about our initial question. Why did God used this imagery of being a husband to his people. Would the imagery of shepherd work here? Would the imagery of king work here? Would the imagery of rock work here? Would the imagery of X, Y, or Z work here? I don't think so. I do not believe so. 
Because what has God shown us? I think we can say this. Take a look on the screen. I think we can say that the idea of God being a husband to His people is meant to communicate how God will faithfully, tenderly, and capably care for His beloved. The image here is meant to communicate how God will faithfully, tenderly, and capably care for His beloved. What some call toxic masculinity is just a caricature of strength. One usually devoid of tenderness. But there are also men who claim, I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) Which is often just a caricature of tenderness. One devoid of real strength. But when you bring these two things together, strength and tenderness, and then you add unrelenting faithfulness to the mix, you have something incredibly attractive. Ladies, do you agree with me on this? Strength, tenderness, and unrelenting faithfulness. Sound like a good husband to you? Absolutely. Wow. Husbands in this room, young men who want to be husbands, this is your picture here. Strength, tenderness, unrelenting faithfulness. God is the perfect husband. The perfect husband. We, we see that powerfully here through this imagery that He has chosen. Think with me about how this ancient imagery speaks to us today. Brothers and sisters, friends, once you accept, in light of the broad testimony of Scripture, I don't have time to to go into all of it this morning, but once you accept, in light of the testimony of Scripture, that you are the wayward wife. You are the wayward wife. I am the wayward wife. We are the wayward wife. The unfaithful spouse in this imagery here of God as husband. Once you are willing to accept that, then the words of God here are truly breathtaking. But wait, 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 wait. Weren't these words spoken to and recorded for ancient Hebrews? (laughs) Like almost 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago? These words are for them, aren't they? Yes, they are for them. They're the first hearers. But another Hebrew, a guy named Paul, he reminds us of this. Take a look on the screen. He reminds us in Romans 15.4 that whatever was written in former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. It was written for our instruction that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God's Word for you this morning is meant to be rocket fuel for your endurance in faith. It's meant to be encouragement for your heart. It's meant to inspire hope in you this morning. This Word from the Old Testament. Let it do that. Don't hinder it. But it won't make any sense to you. It won't promote endurance. It won't be an encouragement to you. And it will not bring you any hope if you do not understand that you are the wayward wife. 
that you are the unfaithful spouse. You have to acknowledge that. And when you do, there's an incredible blessing that comes. Because if you know your New Testament, then you know that this image of God as husband is not confined to the Old Testament. It's not just an Old Testament idea. In fact, we hear it again. And where's the first place that we hear it again when we get to the pages of the New Testament? The lips of Jesus Christ. Who calls Himself what? The bridegroom. Which is a groom. Just a groom. We would say groom in our day. They called it the bridegroom. I don't know why, but... The groom, right? The groom. He was the groom. He called Himself that. He used that in reference to Himself. He used that, that imagery in reference to Himself. Both presently, if the bridegroom is among them, why would they fast? But also in the future, when the bridegroom comes back, will your lamp be lit to meet him when he comes? See, he used that language of himself. And we know, again, going back to our Hebrew friend Paul, the Apostle Paul, we know in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Take a look here on the screen, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. We know Paul describes Jesus as the perfect husband who gave himself up for his bride. To what end? That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might do what? That He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The language is, is, is layered here in the, in the Bible when it comes to, to God as husband. It's not simply you had a covenant with Him, you're His wife now, we're His wife, the bride, the church, Israel, the Old Testament. It's not simply that. In the New Testament, we add the idea of the betrothed, the betrothal. Because there is also this imagery in the New Testament that the wedding is still yet to come. That it has not taken place. But you are covenant but you're covenantly, covenantly betrothed to Him. You're engaged to Him. And that will never change. But He has not completed this work. But there will come a day when the groom will return and the bride will prepare herself. And there will be a wedding, a consummation of that relationship forever and ever. And there will be a feast called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. An imagery, again, an image from Scripture meant to describe to us the celebration, the joyousness, the blessedness of that union of everlasting love. Nothing will change it. So does this passage in Isaiah only have to do with the Hebrews, with the ancient Israelites? No, no, no. Because the fullness of what would come, the restoration to the Israelites, would only come through Jesus Christ. A fulfillment of both Jew and Gentile in one people. Therefore, we now know God as our husband in this same way. Christ as the groom. We as the bride. Have you ever thought about our Redeemer in this way? Our Redeemer? the Redeemer Isaiah spoke of, our Redeemer, in this way. Specifically, think about His cross. His cross was where strength 
divine strength and divine tenderness were at work in perfect measure to accomplish your deliverance. Have you ever thought about it that way? Of what your heavenly husband did for you? Divine tenderness and divine strength in perfect measure. Tenderness towards sinners like us that He gave Himself for us. And strength to defeat decisively sin, death, and the powers of darkness forever. I don't know about you, but that's... I can't think of something strong, someone stronger. Uh, uh, that strength, that's power right there. Is our husband capable? He is. And this is a deliverance characterized by unrelenting faithfulness to his new covenant people. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. No one will be able to take us out of his hand. He will not lose one. Not even one. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can it? No. He is faithful. He will surely do it. He will bring you all the way home to Himself. Unrelenting, unyielding faithfulness at the cross through the resurrection. As I stated last time, wonderfully the God of Isaiah has come near to us in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the heart of God that, that, you're, that you hear in Isaiah through the words of the prophet is the very same heart from which we are blessed today. Right? That distance in time, don't let that distance in time be distance in your own heart. Let it come close to you to know that that speaking, God is speaking to you this morning through His Word about your life. And if you believe that, and you know His restoration, then in light of your sin, please don't miss His comfort here. Comfort and reassurance for every repentant heart. So what I'm saying is, if you are questioning this morning, if you are unsure this morning about your sin, about, and you're struggling with that, please hear Him. His Word is to you, straight to your heart. It's this, fear not. For you will not be ashamed. Do you hear him talking to you this morning? You will not be ashamed. When you come to me with a repentant heart, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget your shame with great compassion I will gather you with everlasting love I will have compassion on you says Yahweh your Redeemer he knows you're struggling with that shame he knows you're struggling telling yourself I've screwed up way one too many times I'm too far gone yeah maybe you could forgive this person but even if you say you're going to forgive me and I come to you, I feel like it's just, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to be over my head again. It's just going to be, I'm going to carry it with me in some way. And God is reassuring us through the words, these words that he spoke, reassuring an ancient audience. He does the same thing in your life today and says, 
let me comfort you and encourage you and tell you you will not be ashamed when you come to me. You will not be disgraced when you come to me. I will not cast you out. Do you understand that he's only able to say this in light of a new covenant, not the old one? Because remember, the old one had terms. We needed to obey and be blessed. If we didn't, we'd suffer consequences. Well, I don't know about you, but I know that I can never obey in the way that God deserves, the way that I should to walk in His path. What's happened? Well, there's a new covenant. Praise God for a new covenant where it's not about me obeying first primarily, it's about what Jesus did in obeying God perfectly. And because He did that, He secured the blessing of perfect obedience. And He gives that blessing to us and simply says, trust me for it. Come to me in faith. And I have, de- I have atoned for you through my blood. I have covered your blood. I have made payment that is so sufficient that anytime you're struggling, you come to me, confess your sin, and I will forgive you. You will not be ashamed. You will not be disgraced. You will not be cast out. I will have compassion on you with everlasting love. Nothing's going to hinder this love again. Why? Because sin can't disrupt it anymore. Not to those who are truly bound in new life by covenant to Jesus. He truly is our Savior. Here, please hear that comfort and that reassurance this morning if you're questioning or you are unsure. And please encourage one another and share with others this really, really good news. The cross of Jesus has secured everlasting love for wayward spiritual wives like us. The cross of Christ has secured that love. If looking to God as my husband means this, if it means daily rejoicing in and leaning into the fact that God will faithfully, tenderly, and capably care for me as His beloved, then sign me up. Absolutely. Every day. If that's what it means, then I'm there then I am so thankful for a heavenly husband. That imagery, right? That imagery is so powerful. Faithfully, tenderly, and capably care for me, His beloved man. In fact, I would be incredibly blessed if I, if I, if I rejoiced in and leaned into that truth more often, wouldn't I? Wouldn't you? If every day you rejoiced over and thought about and really leaned into that truth that God would faithfully, tenderly, and capably care for you, His beloved? Man, I think that would be incredible. Incredibly energizing and revitalizing for you each and every day. It would be like a rear guard behind you. It would be like a shield before you. It would be like a strong tower, right? It would be like wind beneath your wings carrying you up like on, like eagles soaring. It would be this powerful thing refreshing to those who are thirsty. And it can be if you'll reach out and receive it in faith. Finish this sentence for yourself this morning. Finish this sentence in light of your ongoing struggles. You know them. I might not know them. I probably don't know them. But in light of your ongoing struggles, finish this sentence. If God, 
if Christ is really my husband, then blank. Then blank. What, what, what will that mean? What's the implication for you in light of this reality? Brothers and sisters, may God reassure and strengthen you with these ancient words this morning, especially in light of the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you and pray for myself.